So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Commons is brought to you by HelloFresh. It's a meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates delicious new recipes with step-by-step instructions. I actually still keep them. Designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks who are short on time. They source the freshest ingredients measured precisely to the exact quantity that you need. And if you want 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash commons and enter the promo code commons when you subscribe. Commons is also brought to you by the Canadian mattress company Endy. Endy is a Canadian sleep brand that wants to offer you the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. They'll ship the mattress to you in a box and you get a 100-night free trial to see if you like it. To try it out, visit ND.ca, that's E-N-D-Y.ca, and use the promo code COMMONS to get $50 off your first mattress. Since the early 60s, Canada has established peacekeeping as part of its national identity. But for a while, our deployments to peacekeeping missions declined. Back in 2015, the Trudeau government promised to bring Canada back to the world stage. The plan was to do this by returning to Canada's old peacekeeping days. The government promised to commit troops to a peacekeeping mission. And earlier this year, it announced that 200 troops will go to Mali where a UN peacekeeping mission has been going on since 2013. But is this the peacekeeping of the past? Do Canadians even know what peacekeeping means anymore? I'm Ryan McMahon. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. From Canada Land, this is Commons. This episode of Commons is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking super awesome. We've gotten a couple HelloFresh boxes so far, Ryan, and uh, overall impressions. They're incredible. Now, it's summertime, it's patio season, you don't want to be in the kitchen spending hours and hours on meal prep. And what I've been doing is saving those old recipe cards and using them to do my meal prep I bang out five or six of these recipes on a Sunday, get my meals ready for the week. I am winning by using HelloFresh. And so as someone who you know lives alone, I find when I'm 
preparing meals the normal way, I often have too much of the thing I need for cooking. That's what's so cool about these boxes. You get exactly what you need, no food waste, dropped off at your door in a special insulated box for free. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash commons and enter promo code commons when you subscribe. Hadia. Ryan. This episode of Commons is brought to our listeners by the Canadian mattress company, Andy. And I know that you just moved to a brand new apartment, true? I did move to a brand new apartment. And it was so much easier to move my mattress this time around because of Andy's super awesome comfort foam. Talk about it. Well, it just bent out of the way around my staircase. And I don't know if you've tried to move a conventional mattress, but that is not a fun time, especially when you have a really awkward staircase. But ND, I didn't even have to pack it up in a box, though that box also came in very handy. It fluffed out beautifully in my new bedroom. And I have enjoyed so far four wonderful nights of sleep in my new home on my ND mattress. Well, what's amazing about this company is they give our listeners a 100-night free trial to see if they like it. And if you decide that you don't like it, Andy works with local charities and furniture banks, and they get those mattresses back into those banks or charities if you decide this mattress is not for you. But we think you're going to love the 100% Canadian-made Andy mattress. Visit andy.ca, E-N-D-Y.ca. Use the promo code COMMONS, get 50 bucks off your first mattress. So Ryan, there's this meme, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's, you know, what people think I do and what I really do. And so they'll have a, it's usually six pictures. And the first is like, what my friends think I do, and then what my mom thinks I do, what I think I do, and then, you know, what I actually do. They're pretty funny. I I, I will have to say, I've seen, I've seen a few of them around and I... I like them a lot. They're they're pretty funny. Well, in this episode, we're going to apply that meme to peacekeeping. Talk about what people think peacekeeping is versus what it actually what it actually is. Before we get to that meme, I think a quick history lesson is needed. Why is peacekeeping such a big part of Canada's national identity? To answer that, I'm going to have to go back a few decades and across the Atlantic. Alexandria, Egypt. Moby Tone News brings you the latest incident to upset the chancelleries of the free world. In 1956, Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal. President Nasser delivering his fiery speech telling of his nationalization of the Suez Canal. A seizure from private interests that the Egyptian says is his answer to the West for refusing to finance the Aswan Dam. In response to this, Britain and France invaded Egypt. The Suez Canal, storm center of controversy for weeks, now becomes a cause of war in a lightning sequence of diplomatic and military moves. Cracked French units are embarked at Marseille, bound for a joint staging area with Great Britain. Where Canada comes in is that our Minister of External Affairs at the time, Lester B. Pearson, proposed an emergency force led by the UN to help enforce a ceasefire. My delegation would like to submit to the Assembly a very short resolution, which I venture to read at this time. Request, as a matter of priority, the Secretary General to submit to it within 48 hours a plan for the setting up, with the consent of the nations concerned, 
of an emergency international United Nations force. A week later, Britain and France pulled out. Mr. Pearson was later awarded a Nobel Peace Prize for this idea. I like it that Canada kicked out a couple of colonizers out of the territory around the Suez Canal. So now I'm as curious as you are about peacekeeping. Like, like I really need some clarification on what the hell a Canadian peacekeeper is because we're hearing a lot about it in the news. So we actually had to show the meme to two people. Major General retired Dennis Thompson, 39 years in uh, the Canadian Armed Forces with service in uh, Cyprus, Germany, Bosnia twice, Afghanistan, and uh, my last tour in, uh, in the Sinai. And... My name is Aisha Ahmed, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science. I teach international security. I'm also a senior researcher at the Global Justice Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs. Right. So when I asked Professor Ahmad how she thinks Canadians view peacekeeping, here's what she said. Well, I think when we imagine the Canadian peacekeeper on the world stage, this is uh, something that our national myth around peacekeeping, you know, relates to saving people from disaster, you know, sort of carrying the baby out of the, the burning building. That's, uh, that's our imagined conception of what peacekeeping looks like. That's probably a very far cry from what it actually looks like on the ground. And what did she say to the question of what politicians think peacekeepers do? Well, I put that question to her as well. Well, I think that politicians have uh, a different set of interests. So there's a, a need for our political leaders to construct a national narrative. And I think that's where that myth of Canada as a peacekeeping nation becomes really valuable. So it's not just for our domestic population, but also for politicians' understanding of, of Canada's identity on the world stage. And so for Canadian politicians, peacekeeping has been an opportunity, has been a strategy really, for demonstrating that they have uh, an important presence in the international community and for, for increasing their leverage on the world stage without having to invest heavily in other types of more conventional uh, forms of security uh, and forms of warfare. The last part of the meme is to find out what peacekeepers actually do. Yeah, and I, I think to understand that, we need to hear from someone who worked in a peacekeeping mission. So I asked General Thompson what peacekeepers actually do. So I, I think the best place to start is to, uh, to think about a spectrum of conflict. If you, if you were to draw it out from left to right, on the very extreme left, you'd have um, missions that are, are called um, uh, conflict prevention missions. And uh, they're typically led by a, a political person with a very small military staff. And the example that springs to mind is one that occurred uh, between Nigeria and Cameroon to settle the issue of the oil in the Bakasi Peninsula. And so that's a very small mission. It comes at a very small cost. And uh, the risk to life and limb is about zero. Around the middle of the spectrum, you have traditional peacekeeping, which is? Interstate peacekeeping with a buffer zone keeping two belligerent parties apart. For a peacekeeping mission to be legal, it needs to be sanctioned by the United Nations under either Chapter 6 or 7 of the UN Charter, which most of the world signed on to. Chapter 6 is uh, what a peacekeeper is doing when he's, uh, what a soldier is doing when he's engaged in peacekeeping. All the other bits to the right, if it has a Security Council blessing, are considered Chapter 7 because you are using force and typically have more robust rules of engagement. So on the right of the spectrum, you have Chapter 7 missions, which are... 
peace enforcement missions. And now you're talking about a mission more akin to what I did with NATO in Bosnia on two occasions where you're enforcing uh, the peace using the weapons that you have at your, uh, that, that are available to you. And typically they're very robust rules of engagement. And as you continue to move right, then you get into uh, failed states, counterinsurgency situations, uh, such as we were engaged in in um, Kandahar province, where I was NATO's task force commander for nine months. And you're fighting a low-intensity in, uh, low conflict war. And then finally, at the, at the very end of the spectrum, it's high-intensity conflict, which is what we trained for in the Cold War years and, and um, what I participated in short of war while I was uh, deployed in Germany as a, as a reconnaissance platoon commander. So that, that's the spectrum um, and peacekeeping today, generally speaking, falls into that peace enforcement uh, bordering on counterinsurgency realm. So it's much different from uh, what I experienced in Cyprus in 1986. Um, and it has gotten progressively more dangerous than it even was in ni- 1996 and 2001 in Bosnia. And it is more akin to the conflict that we fought in Afghanistan. Is the term peacekeeper by definition apt for um, the Canadian participation inside of that spectrum? Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. You took the words right out of my mouth. They're soldiers deployed in operations and the operations are described by the spectrum. So they're either doing conflict prevention, peacekeeping, stabilization operations, counterinsurgency or full out war, but they're soldiers that are deployed. Uh, is there is there a specific type of training for peacekeeping or these are soldiers on peacekeeping missions? There absolutely is. So what happens in the Canadian Army, and I believe it's still the case today, I haven't been out that long, is that you do your, your general military training. And uh, once a year, uh, depending on where you are on what's called the road to high readiness, everybody qualifies in all the war fighting tasks so that you're at the top of your game. If you're designated to go on a mission, then you're given mission-specific training. If it happens to be a peacekeeping mission, then you'll get mission-specific peacekeeping training. How do Canadian soldiers generally view peacekeeping and peacekeeping missions? Well, in, in my uh, in my experience, every operation, regardless of whether it's uh, where it is on that spectrum is of interest to Canadian soldiers. They don't join the Canadian Armed Forces to sit on a rucksack in a base somewhere in uh, Petawawa, Edmonton, or Valcartier. They join because they want to go on operations. So, uh, uh, frankly, uh, the nature of the operation is not as important as actually getting to go on it, and people clamor to go on these missions. Peacekeeping is, 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 a, is a big part of the Canadian identity um, and has been for a very long time. Um, why is it? Why is Canada seen as as a leader in this space, in in the peacekeeping space, and and what does it mean to the Canadian identity to be uh, peacekeepers? I believe because we don't have any colonial baggage. If you think of the uh, the P five, the permanent members of the Security Council, uh, China, Russia, U.S., France, and U.K., they all have. Um, Baggage, colonial and otherwise. Uh, when we turn up at a mission as a as a uh, Western force, uh, we we don't have that history, and I think that's what uh, gives us an advantage in terms of being perceived as impartial. If you're Belgium in Rwanda, if you think of General Dallaire's experience in Rwanda, 
you got a problem because they're the former colonial power. And that, that creates, whether we like it or not, it, it creates the impression that you're not impartial and that you have your own agenda and your own vested interest. Yeah, and I, I suppose that's where I kind of want to go with with my follow-up question to the colonial baggage uh, comment. I mean, I, I certainly understand what you mean in terms of, you know, the, the global uh, colonialism question. Certainly Canada has its own uh, ongoing form of, of colonization here, but we'll, we'll zoom out and kind of look at the global question. Does Canada's allyship with the five countries that you mentioned not therefore put you in the same boat as as those five countries in the eyes of the countries that you're going to peacekeep in? Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And that depends on uh, how much effort you put into making that distinction. So uh, if I think about our operations in Bosnia, when I went back as a battalion commander in 2001, I was responsible for two abstinas. And we definitely put a Canadian stamp on it. So they knew they were talking to Canadians. And there's a lot of similarities between the former Yugoslavia uh, at Bosnia Herzegovina and uh, and Canada in terms of climate um, geography etc. So it was easy to make that connection and 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 make that distinction in Afghanistan, not so much. It was more difficult to uh, because of the heavy American footprint and uh, the requirement, quite frankly, for American support and the fact that internal to my task force were Americans, British, and Dutch um, and Polish soldiers. So. Distinguishing one nation from another in Afghanistan, you're just another Ferengi, another foreigner. Some of the general sentiment that we heard in, in preparing for the interview was that that these efforts tend to do more harm than good uh, at the end of the day. Um, h- how would you respond to that? Uh, well, that, that speaks directly to quality. You need quality density from top to bottom. So it, if you do not have quality where the rubber meets the road, in other words, the infantrymen that wear the, that walk the, that walk the streets, so to speak, or walk the beat and secure the ground, if they are um, badly trained or poorly paid, uh, then they will become part of the problem. There is no question about it. If a soldier steps out of line, it is the country's responsibility to discipline him, not the, not the UN or NATO or the multinational force and observers. But I always told people I owned one thing that they have in their possession. And I used to uh, address all the new, new soldiers when they came to the mission. I owned their ID card. And without their ID card, they were not welcome in the country where we were present. And I told them There's, there are three things that will get you kicked off of this mission and, and I'll seize your ID card and make sure you're sent home without reference to your contingent commander. Number one is abuse of alcohol. Number two is use of illicit drugs. And number three is sexual abuse or sexual assault. And it's that third one that is most problematic in some of these UN missions where um, the attitudes of some troop contributing countries don't exactly match the gold standard that we would like it to be. It is true that in some of these missions, they do become part of the problem because of um, uh, sexual exploitation and assault against women in the in their area of operation. And then and then doing it with impunity, not having it followed up by their own by their own chain of command. What kind of steps do the leadership inside of Canadian peacekeeping units take to ensure that Canadian soldiers aren't uh, committing these kinds of atrocities? Well, number one is training, and and at the moment inside of the Canadian Armed Forces is a uh, ongoing Operation Honor, which is which targets exactly that sexual um, 
harassment as well, sexual harassment, exploitation, and assault, uh, to make sure that it's reported. And so it really is a chain of uh, command responsibility. And once it's reported, um, the beauty is we have a National Defense Act that covers all of these things as offenses, and and, uh, commanders can take action. But in my experience, on peacekeeping operations, it's a rare very rare occasion that a Canadian soldier commits one of those heinous crimes. In fact, I'd have a hard time thinking of one. Right. Peacekeeping in, in Canada uh, was on the decline. And in 2015, the Liberal government promised to, to bring Canada back to the table and recommit to sending peacekeeping troops to, uh, to UN missions. Why, why was it important for Canada to appear back on the world stage in this, in this regard? Uh, that's a great policy question. I'm a practitioner. Um, I have spent time in uh, in policy in uh, in national defense uh, because we were we were definitely engaged in operations. They just didn't happen to be in that one little part of the spectrum that I've described for you, to you. They happened to be at the other end, uh, more in stability operations or in counterinsurgency. And frankly, we have troops uh, deployed today in Latvia. That are that are part of our uh, NATO obligation, and uh, you know they're there as a deterrent force more than anything else. So it's not that we're not participating in operations; it's that we're not specifically participating in blue helmeted operations. And the reason why we didn't is uh, it's a super policy question, one that's best put to a, a liberal politician. Yeah, well, there's a few of those floating around. We might be able to find one. Uh, so, Hadia, were we able to find a liberal politician lying around that we could ask that question to? Uh, no, but I was able to ask Professor Ahmed that same question, and here's what she told me. So, after September 11, not only did Canada not uh, continue advocating for a peacekeeping role on the world stage, but we we embarked on the longest warfighting mission in Canada's history in Afghanistan. Canada was responding to its NATO obligations under Article 5, and so that really reoriented uh, Canada's military identity on the world stage. And so after what was an extended, you know, 13 years of, uh, of conflict, looking back, I think a lot of Canadians felt like that was a lot of blood and treasure, we're looking at a country that is still very much in the throes of a jihadist insurgency, arguably even more virulent and fragmented than before. And there were a lot of very serious questions about whether or not anything uh, significant was accomplished, or if, if we look at the accomplishments of that mission, whether or not they were worth the investment that Canada made. And so this discussion, this national discussion, opened up and became ongoing, and that's where that opened the possibility of saying, well, weren't we supposed to be a peacekeeping nation? And so the Liberal government, which is very much, if you look at, at Trudeau and his, his family legacy and his respect for Pearson uh, and liberal internationalism, the revitalization of that tradition provided a segue for Canadians who wanted to get back to an identity that they thought made more sense. And so we recently committed troops to Mali. Um, why are we sending troops to Mali in particular? So I was in Mali last uh, March, and uh, just a couple months ago, and that is one complicated conflict zone. Um, that is a place where I think that we would 
we would walk away. F we are going to walk away from this mission, thinking that it's probably even more difficult to understand than Afghanistan, and that is saying something. Now, the reason that we're going to Mali is because the French desperately asked us to help. So there was a request on the part of Canada's allies to provide relief for other troop-contributing countries that have been in theater for a long time. Uh, this mission was already being designed. It's being designed uh, in response to what was a 2012 coup d'etat and jihadist takeover in uh, alliance with ethnic insurgents in the north. Uh, in 2013, the French uh, helped push back that insurgency, and by 2014, there was an uneasy peace that was formed between two coalitions, both of which have subgroups within them that are defined along ethnic and tribal lines and communitarian lines. On the outside of the peace process are a group of jihadists who have increasingly unified and in 2017 formed one umbrella organization. They are an Al-Qaeda affiliate in the Maghreb region. And so uh, Canada is entering into this theater in which it's supporting a peace process and local actors that are a bunch of ethnic militias with some pretty unsavory pasts and presents uh, and at the same time trying to rebuff an Islamist insurgency that has a lot of clout in the north. And how dangerous, then, is this mission for Canadian troops? Uh, many say it's the world's most dangerous peacekeeping mission. It's definitely deadly. Uh, it's the kind of mission where, you know, there's been a lot of body bags, unfortunately. Now, Canadians are involved in air support and uh, rescue missions, which keep them off of the front uh, to a certain degree. So within the context of the mission, it's a lower risk type of engagement, but it's definitely a dangerous part of the world. If you could use a different word to describe what is happening now instead of peacekeeping, what word would you use? Complex interventions. You know, these are, are interventions in complex civil wars that have regional spillover, multiple armed groups and illicit economies. So these are very complicated military interventions in fragile and, uh, and volatile states. And are these interventions effective at all, or are they doing more harm than good? So I think that we find ourselves in these uh, horrifying rock-and-hard-place situations. So if we look at 1991 uh, Somalia, where you see the state fail and it's a disaster, mm -hmm. and between 93 and 95 we've got a disastrous UN intervention that just... I mean, across the board, you can't say that that was a success. I mean, Canada was involved in also a racist scandal, and, and we see this as a disastrous failure. And then in Rwanda in 94, everyone's reeling from the Somalia mission, and so nobody wants to go back into another complicated peacekeeping uh, engagement. And then 800,000 people die in 100 days. And so uh, we, we feel at some points like we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. That said... Some research says that if there's a UN peacekeeping mission, that the overall uh, uh, conflict will reduce in its length and its violence. There's other research that shows that, in fact, you know, when you bring in that kind of money and that those that level of resources into a conflict, it essentially acts like a diamond mine, and then armed groups end up pilfering those resources, and it extends the conflict. A friend of mine, Peter Andreas, uh, published a book in which he tracked in the Bosnian War 
how UN resources were directly going into the pockets of armed groups and prolonged the siege of Sarajevo by years. And so while there's statistical research that says, oh, peacekeeping is good, I wonder whether or not those data sets are really taking into consideration some of these more contemporary processes that show that, in fact, it's waking the problem worse. Um, how are the civilians in host nations affected by peacekeeping, and, and how do they view peacekeepers? So, you know, on the one hand, what I will say is that when international interventions enter into very poor and very broken places, we also show up with a whole lot of money. And uh, those dollars have an immediate effect on people's lives, but in a way they can sometimes create toxic long-term patterns. So there are people who will say we're really happy that there are folks who are going to come into our market and buy something or you know these foreigners will come into our restaurant and eat from you know eat here and that that brings in some money in what was otherwise a depressed economy. But you look at a place like Afghanistan where the entire economy started to orient towards the international intervention and everybody's job was somehow connected to it. Logistics, translation, driving, construction. And so we bring in all of these resources. And so there's a short-term boom that is created around it. But it's so temporary. It creates a fundamental system of dependency. And so on the one hand, people will be like, I'm glad these folks are spending money. And then on the other hand, there are engagements that really, really alienate local communities. And so I was speaking to um, a senior person in the uh, UN mission in Mali in Bamako who told me that uh, there was one region where the Islamists, where the jihadists, had held territory but had engaged in you know, some form of public services, they had built a well, they had provided some form of law and order. The United Nations mission supported an overall endeavor to remove them, which is of course on point for what the mission is aimed to do. But what they did is, after they ousted them, two rival factions then took control over the area. They're signatories to the peace agreements. And these guys essentially overtaxed and were engaged in corruption and engaged in all sorts of abuses of the local population. And so that population is like, who the heck are these guys, these international forces who essentially dumped corrupt, abusive militias on our doorstep? And so that does have an effect on how local populations see the conflict as a whole. Do you think we should stay committed to peacekeeping or conflict intervention? Um, or is that something that we need to shake off of our national identity? So the fact that we still think that we're committed to peacekeeping is silly because uh, we are not a lead country that is engaged in peacekeeping operations anywhere in the world. Does this mean that I think that Canada should, should retreat from the world stage? Absolutely not. Uh, I think that Peacekeeping has evolved over the course of the past, you know, 60 years, and it will continue to evolve. If Canada does indeed want to both embody and espouse principles of, you know, gender equity, of hum uh, respect for human rights on the world stage, which really it should start by doing here at home, but uh, if we're going to do that on the world stage, then in fact our voices should probably be in the conversation because there's a whole lot of crazy out there right now. And so non-participation is not serving the world because if we are even, if we look at the international system for shifting away from 
American hegemony and unipolarity into an era of multipolarity in which the United States, China, and Russia are all sort of major leading powers in the international system. I'm not sure that we want the only narrative uh, that exists in that international system to be led by you know, those three states alone. So if Canada can punch above its weight and say and do the right things at home first and then abroad, then that's worth pursuing. And what do you think we should specifically focus on going forward to um, punch above our weight both here and abroad? So right now, our government has decided it's going to be, let's make peacekeeping more gender equal, which is an interesting and valuable niche uh, approach. But there are other uh, systemic uh, ways to think about how Canada can contribute to the entire conception of what peacekeeping is about, um, you know, the approach to engagement. You know, a lot of the problems that we see in these places is because mission design at the outset of these engagements is uh, expedient and short-sighted. And then we end up allied with these terrible local actors that have no interest in long-term peace. And so one of the things that Canada could do is uh, be a sober uh, second thought in that mission design stage so that these sort of obvious mistakes don't have to be made. Mm -hmm. Thinking creatively, if you really think about that light touch, large impact, how could Canada contribute to the types of engagements that don't result in that toxic dependency of everybody's got a job based on the intervention, but rather in, uh, invest in such a way where people can have self-sustaining livelihoods, this isn't actually that hard to, um, to reimagine. Those are areas where I think Canada could make a very interesting contribution, and they don't involve bullets. I'm thinking about, uh, I read this book called Nonviolent Communication, and uh, how that person kind of used things to disarm and diffuse uh, tense situations. And I think that's what people think, you know, Canadians do or Canadians peacekeepers do when they're abroad, that we kind of are the voice of reason and we go in there and, you know, hold the hands of the two parties and 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 help help everyone come to an agreement. Um, but I think that the, the way that the world has operated since um, the end of the Cold War has really changed um, that reality, if it even was a reality at any point. Yeah, well, that's why I was so curious about asking General Thompson about special training. You know, um, when we when we look at conflict resolution models, are 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 there specific sets of training that that are given to to peacekeeping units that really hone in on those conflict resolution models that can get people on the ground to be fair and reasoned? But you know, the truth is, I think. What I've learned through this episode um, is that in points of conflict and at times of war, um, those those models just are, are not considered. Because at the end of the day, you're a, a young Canadian kid from the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan, that signed up to be a soldier, and um, you just try to stay alive. And I don't know how effective, uh, you know, peacekeeping or conflict resolution measures really are when the adrenaline starts to go and you're running through a war torn uh, country. And I, I just I really struggled with, with the idea of, you know, peacekeeping. I, I, 
They're soldiers. Let's call them what they are. I mean, you would think that peacekeeping training should be something that would be given to every soldier. You know, if someone's entering a conflict zone where they're not a peacekeeper, where they are a soldier, we would still want to use the least force possible, right? We still want people to be de-escalating. That's a great point. And it shouldn't be lost on us that, you know, imperialism, colonialism, and and at the end of the day, uh, money is what drives these conflicts. And um, the countries involved generally will benefit from, you know, some sort of peace on one side or the other. And there, there there's, there's bucket loads of money at stake in all of these conflicts for one side or the other. When we get involved that way, it's pretty hard to kind of have these altruistic uh, nice ideas of, of who we are as a country when really at the bottom line, we're trying to stay on the right side of our of our allies. And, um, you know, the, the global geopolitical conversation that I'm not equipped to have <laughs> uh, sh- shouldn't be lost on us. And as Canada, we have... We are a small country. We don't have a lot of economic thrust behind us the same way our larger allies may. And so I think that we really still see peacekeeping as this way um, to be part of the conversation. Well, and you know, what's interesting is I think about my family. I have uncles, my grandfather, my grandmother, um, great uncles, cousins. I I come from a long line of... of, um, of family members that served in the military and they're all indigenous and, you know, came back to this country after having served and not received the same benefits or rights as, as, you know, indigenous veterans as other veterans had when they came back. And so when I talk to them about their service, either through peacekeeping roles or or serving in times of war, um, I asked them about that, you know, when you, when you served, were you, you serving for Canada? Were you serving for, you know, um, the flag? Like, where's the, where do you see the honor in, in your service when you came back and, and weren't treated the same? And, you know, very plainly and very clearly, they said, well, you know, we were serving for our nation, for Anishinaabe people. And, you know, what's really interesting there and why I kind of bring it up is, is the nuance around like, um, the reason why people serve in these missions is is not necessarily because, you know, they like guns and to blow things up, but that, you know, for Indigenous people to serve in these missions and where I'm really conflicted is that I have a family that has served in these th- times of war and, and at times of peace, is that um, in their estimation, it was what was necessary to protect, you know, our homelands and... Ooh, that's where I get really screwed up. That's our Commons episode for this week. I'm Ryan McMahon. And I'm Hadir Rodrigue. Thanks for tuning in. If you have feedback for us, have a pitch, or just want to say hi, send us an email at latifa at canadalandshow.com. That's L-A-T-I-F-A at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by Latifa Abdin with editorial help from Ellen Payne-Smith. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to get at us, find us online. And if you like what we do, please support us.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 